Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Social Security Administration is reorganizing how it manages and oversees technology. The agency is renaming the Office of Systems to the Office of the CIO as part of its effort to push for more innovation and modernization. Patrick Newbold is the new acting CIO of SSA. Executive Editor Jason Miller and Federal Drive host Tom Temin caught up with Newbold at the recent ELC conference before SSA announced that reorganization. They discussed how the agency is driving digital transformation. We are looking at modernizing our system, and, and not just our system. Again, I go back is the, the reason we're modernizing our systems and the reason we're modernizing our IT is because we're trying to address a business need or improve a business process. So the way we're approaching uh, digital modernization is looking at what problems do we need to solve and improve, and then we're aligning uh, our goals and our investments around doing that. For example, um, one of our priorities is multi-factor authentication, and that uh, EO came out. It, it came out for us um, as a, a mandate, but we necessarily didn't resource for that. Fortunately, we uh, were able to leverage the TMF, and we submitted a proposal and uh, was able to uh, get a approval for that award. And, and as a result, um, around 315 of our systems, um, we are um, on a good path to getting those things uh, MFL, MFA compliant. Yeah, on that idea of modernization of IT, there's also just the basic function of paying out the benefits every week. And in sure. that sense, you're like the National Finance Center yeah. or the Interior Business Center, only several orders of magnitude bigger in what you pay out in the frequency. And it used to be just a matter of mainframe capacity planning and how much tape would we need to get these checks printed. What's going on on the basic bread and butter front of the infrastructure for the main mission, which is getting millions and millions of checks out week after week? Getting the right paycheck to the right person at the right time, right? Easy to say. Easy to say. Hard to do. But we've been doing it very well, and we're continuing to modernize. Over the past year, we stood up a, a benefits modernization PMO. Um, we put an executive in front of that. I mean, that sole purpose and that sole goal is to modernize our systems. We want to get them into a cloud, from mainframe to the cloud, off the COBOL, um, a legacy code, to a more modern code base. And, and while doing that, providing a very seamless, automated as possible process for our employees, uh, the ones who are uh, processing the claims, and then our online um, capability for the public to, to seamlessly uh, apply for those benefits. Because the first public. hiccup in that system you know you'll hear from Capitol Hill in about oh. 12 milliseconds. Yeah, we will. That idea of, of the mainframe modernization, that, that entire effort, you all, I think, last year at this time or, or shortly after had released an IT modernization strategy. Mm -hmm. Th these things are living documents. Right. How is that kind of, whether it's officially evolved or have you evolved it just internally to say, okay, this was the path, now that path is a little to the right or a little to the left right. now. Has, has there been some changes or some thinking in, yeah. in terms of how you want to continue along? Yes, we've been, over the past year or so, um, really been focused on internally mapping out our next phase of that modernization plan. And, and you know, to me, modernization never truly ends. Right. Right? And, and I like your statement, it's always a living document. But one of the things that I think we're doing different um, in terms of our organization is we're trying to modernize our culture, if that makes sense. We're putting forth some, some principles that I hope to share with you soon that we're really trying to drive our workforce to move towards to help us modernize, right, as we are make, designing these products, are we designing these services. Um, there's some very key things that we want to make sure that the culture is, is, is instilling in their processes to include things like a retiring technical debt, managing technical debt, 
to include uh, things like integrating and removing silos from our systems so they can talk together better and provide better data and more quality data. So that's one of the things we're focused on internally now that I think once we uh, lay out a, a more robust uh, implementation plan, we'll have more success in um, delivering that because we changed the culture. Now, a lot of these changes will have changed the way that people work. It's going to change the processes for your own employees. Mm-hmm. And are you getting union buy-in with this? I mean, how do you make sure that they come along because they can really accelerate it if they're with you yeah. and they can frankly make it never happen if they're not? Yeah, I, I would just say that, that you know, one, one of the things that we practice in the SSA is just we, we're having an open uh, dialogue with the union because you know, our, our employees are represented and we want to make sure we're doing the right thing for the agency and, and our employees. So we just continue to have that dialogue. I want to go back to something you said when you talk about the workforce and the culture and, and that. And I know you said maybe you'd have something to share with us in a little bit. Yeah. But let me just ask you, you, when we play the game, the buzzword bingo game, you mentioned AI, so thank you for that. You didn't mention DevSecOps, so I'll, yeah. throw, I'll, pu- I'll put that on the board. Yeah. Is that part of the, the change that you're starting to look at? So how do we make sure they're trained in a way to do that iterative development, that we're not stuck in the world of, even if you're not using mainframes, the mainframe kind of thinking where, oh, set it and leave it, and we have to continue to iterate. Is that all part of this discussion? That's absolutely part of the discussion. And in fact, since the last year we talked, we have had significant percentage uh, I say a good percentage of our um, new software rolled out in the DevOps fashion. And what we have seen is uh, faster uh, time to roll out, um, better quality of the, uh, as we um, doing the testing. Uh, and we're going to continue to evolve that. Is, have you set up a specific shop for DevSecOps or, or iterative development or agile, whatever we're going to call it? Yeah, we, we have a, a, a shop who is uh, uh, responsible for kind of setting out the, the DevSecOps. I find that, that a lot of it was cultural. Um, and there's some tools and things you got to support it for the automation purposes. But it's culture. So we set up a team within our uh, office of systems, my office of systems, that's focused on, on, on that. But also, you know, for a while now, we've been in in tune to, to um, agile development and really looking at incremental. Uh, we have a mindset that we're, we're going to think big, we're going to start small, and we're going to iterate. And, and that's the approach that we're taking. Are there specific projects you're aiming for to say, okay, that makes more sense to, to use this approach for? Yeah. Some of the older systems, maybe it's harder. Maybe you have some newer systems that are already there. But how are you prioritizing, okay, that's the one that makes sense to, to, to apply Agile or move it off a waterfall? Or yeah. that one doesn't quite make sense yet, but we want to get there. How, how are you looking at that rationalization and optimization? Yeah. What, what we're looking at is projects or products that are transformed or grow in nature. In other words, we're you're modernizing it or we're brand new services. Those are the ones we're targeting to, to go through this new process. I can give you an example of one. Please um, do, yeah. Um, we recently, this year, uh, rolled out our enterprise scheduling solution. It's a self-scheduling capability um, for the public to be able to go online and make their own appointment. They need to replace a card, a service that was not in place until, yeah. until now. And um, we used that process, and you know, in, in less than in just about a year, we were able to uh, uh, roll out to a subset of our regions. We got really good feedback, made some changes, iterated, and now it's rolled out to all 50 states. And um, that service is available for the public today. So you develop small, try it, and then scale right. fast when you know that it works. That's right. That's right. Is there is there been a big lesson learned from that experience that you're now saying, okay, that's a, a, an application, and not we're applying that lesson learned more broadly? Yeah, we, we are. You know, any services that we're, you know, rolling out from a public-facing perspective, and I'll give you another example, one that we're doing this, that's it's only rolled out to a certain region now, the Boston region, is our ability to um, um, upload documents. Uh, we rolled out to the Boston region 
only because we want to test it out, um, get some feedback in the process of making those adjustments, and then we'll roll out a little broader. But I think that approach, um, you, you, you know, you, you get some feedback. Remember I, I told you earlier we're going to be um, co- um, customer-focused and centric. Get that feedback, make iterations, and, and roll out. And, and so, so it worked very well for our scheduling system, and it's, it's, it's seeming to work good for this upload. When you say upload documents, does that mean employees can do it from the field offices or can the public do it online? The the public has an uh, ability to upload documents for their transactions through a phone, mobile device, or a home computer. And how do you differentiate that it's only people in in the New England region? Does it go by IP address or just by their home address? Yeah, the, the, the way we roll this out um, is that it's um, employee-initiated, so only the, the employees within the region. I see. Yeah, you know, when, when, when they need to get a form or, or something completed, they'll submit a request to that customer. Customer will take, get it, you know, authenticate in security, and then have the ability so to upload it. So there's an email back uh, it, it's a link. Uh, a link. Uh, it's yeah. a link that it can go in and, 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 okay. and upload documents. Is, is this... Uh, as you said, you'll get your feedback, you'll iterate, you'll improve mm-hmm. upon it. Is the goal for 2024 to roll out much broader? Uh, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. The, goal, the goal is to roll out um, much broader. But more importantly than that, the goal is to take the feedback that we got and incorporate that and roll the improvements out as well. That's Patrick Newbold, the acting CIO of the Social Security Administration. You can hear his conversation with Jason Miller and Tom Temin at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. 
Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency 
And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys 
having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.